everyone. Welcome to the Charvak Podcast. This is your host Kushal Mehra. All right. So my guest today is Ashwin Sanghi. Ashwin is a best-selling author and award-winning author. He's an author of multiple books. But today we're going to be talking about a very specific book of his, his latest book, which is called The Magicians of Master, which is part of a larger series called the Bharat series. Ashwin, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Kushal, for inviting me. And I must clarify in the beginning that I'm a fan of yours. Thank you, Yar. But for me personally, I was just telling you offline, you know, today for me is like one of those bucket list things done because like I told you, so, you know, I have, uh, you know, deep respect for both you and Amish. You guys have done fantastic work in writing. And, uh, you know, it, it's it's inspirational to see the kind of work you guys produce. I mean, you know, I was I, I, one day I was just sitting and thinking, yeah, you guys write books like people write blogs. <laughs> that is the speed at which you guys produce content. It's, it's like the problem is that writers, the problem is there is this old proverb which says that writers can write books faster than publishers can write checks. So this is the problem in our lives. <laughs> <laughs> So, so Ashwin, uh, uh, we'll get into the book, but I want to, because this is your first time on the podcast, I actually wanted to dig a little, you know, in your mind. So, so you are now, so you're a renowned author, but I want to understand because as I was telling you offline, now there are two, three things that fascinated me, especially in this book. Like I told, uh, I always do this. When I read a book, I look at the last section first that has the author given any bibliography footnotes. Now, usually you don't associate this with fiction writing, right? People just yes. write the book and they don't give any footnotes because it's fiction. Why do I need? But lo and behold, you have given copious amounts of footnotes in most of your books, including this book. Now, tell me, how does Ashwin Sanghi sit down and decide, okay, this is how I'm going to structure my book so, so can you give us a little sneak peek into your mind in that sense? How do you prepare for a book? Sure, sure. I, I think uh, uh, for me, uh, you know, I think a lot of writers, Kushal, they start thinking of ideas when they get down to writing a book. That never happens with me because uh, I am a little bit anal about this in terms of capturing ideas as I go along with my life. So uh, uh, I will. I may have this conversation with you, and two points raised by you may be very interesting to me. Uh, I will email myself, and over the last ten odd years, I have emailed myself maybe around ten thousand to twelve thousand times. Uh, it could be an interesting uh, podcast. It could be a YouTube video. It could be a PDF. Uh, it could be a web link. Uh, I may be. Uh, traveling along the road and I see something interesting and I take a pic and I email it to myself. So when I need to get down to writing a story, then I go back to my email journal and I look for the ideas that stood out. Uh, once I have figured out that, okay, this is an idea that I can live with for two years because that's the amount of time it takes me to write a Bharat series book. Uh, so that's the time when I then start digging into that idea in terms of research, first developing a reading list uh, and developing also other potential sources of inquiry. Uh, for example, 
the nature of research in different books will be different uh, the krishna key involved not only a reading of the mahabharat but for example uh, visiting dwarka or somnath or mathura in order to be able to familiarize myself with a lot of those locations that i was writing about uh, or for example chanakya's chant was a reading of the arthashastra as well as the mudra rakshas um if i look at a book like the sialkot saga which uh, covers 70 years of post independence indian history uh then it was actually talking to people who had lived through the 1950s and 60s of calcutta and bombay uh so the nature of research will change keepers of the kal chakra i had to teach myself quantum theory uh because i wanted to see the overlaps between quantum theory and uh, uh buddhism uh so uh the nature of research will change but typically that research process is 6 months to 9 months uh once i am done with that i will sit down in order to develop a plot uh because all of these are meant to be thrillers they are in the thriller genre uh and uh, uh the the key element in a thriller is that i must be able to uh motivate you to turn the page uh so what i normally do is i will sit with an excel spreadsheet and every uh, and this is the old banya buddhi probably kicking in uh kushal which you can relate to uh aapne bhi sabko chhod chhad ke ye shuru kar diya uh maine wo bhi kiya 15 saal pehle when i wrote my first book so uh the i will sit down and every chapter will be a row uh, on the spreadsheet where i will typically write about 100 or 200 words what happens in that chapter and what is the hook on which i will end that chapter so that i can propel you into the next chapter usme then i will also have another column which refers to the research that is relevant to that particular chapter this entire process of research and plotting will take me a year the actual writing of a book will not take me more than 6 months because at that time wo aapne dekha hoga na jab bacche coloring book leke baithte hain crayons ke sath so the outlines are already drawn fir usko sirf ye decide karna hai ki main yahan par lal crayon kaam mein lunga ya green crayon kaam mein lunga so the for me the outlines are already drawn and the writing becomes the easiest part of it so now that takes us into 18 months the next Three to four months are on the rewrites uh, because I'm a very bad writer, and I'm not trying to uh, indicate any false uh, humility out here. I'm genuinely a bad writer, but I'm a fairly good rewriter. So once I go back into the material, I'll say, "No, this is working. This is not working." At that point of time, I will lose about ten percent or fifteen percent of what I have written. I will discard it. Uh, and that's the most difficult thing to do for any writer because you're in love with every line that you've written so i will knock out about 10 to 15% of the book at that time and that then takes me into the next stage which is in terms of editing proofreading and so on and so forth so that entire end to end process is about 24 months now coming back to the question about the bibliography and the the sources at the end of the book as i've gone along this journey i will have discovered uh various sources of information uh and every book in the bharat series is actually that amalgamation of fact and fiction uh for uh, many people call me a mythology writer some people call me a historical fiction writer some people call me a conspiracy fiction writer i don't know what i am but <laughs> what i am actually kushal is that i am an overlap guy where i see an overlap a connection that interests me 
So for example, for me, uh, in let's say the Rosabal line, the very first novel I wrote, uh, the the notion that there could have been an overlap between a tomb in Srinagar known as Rosabal and the life of Jesus Christ, that became my fascination point. Uh, uh, so whether it is a overlap between history and mythology, an overlap between uh, science and spirituality, an overlap between philosophy and culture, any overlap is which uh, will be the starting point of a book. But what I want is that once the reader has read the book, uh, and if that subject has interested him enough, then I want them to go on a journey and go dig back into the sources that I had used. So that is the reason why I provide such an exhaustive bibliography of sources, uh, which you normally do not find in fiction novels. Yeah, uh, honestly, uh, not that I'm a very heavy duty fiction reader for full disclosure, but whenever I've read fiction books, I don't see footnotes and bibliography because that's when, when I read your work, I was like, hang on, he's giving bibliography. This is very interesting, which takes me to the next bit. Now, fiction is obviously, you know, it's not something that actually happened, but but I noticed this and I don't know if it's by design or uh, or it's for any other reason. I'm just curious. Again, I'm trying to understand your writing style is because I have a deep admiration for what you've done and what you've achieved. Now, I see this, you know, tone in your writing style where you will use the actual historical event. Uh, mm -hmm. That's why there is a bibliography. Hmm. And then you take some inspiration out of it. And that then gets a part in your story when where somebody might say, see, this has happened in mm. the past. So mm. this had actually happened. Now I'm telling you a story. Is there is there an actual method behind this? And that is why you work around it? Or how is it? How do you come up with that? then? So, so think about this as a construction project. Okay. Uh, in order to create a building, uh, you will first dig a foundation. And then after that, you will pour cement and concrete in order to create that foundation. Then after that, you will put up the columns and the beams uh, in order to support that entire structure. Uh, and then, of course, finally, you will do brickwork and plaster and all of that. So going back into the novel writing process and my research process, for me, my research, which in includes history, uh, theology, philosophy, uh, elements of uh, modern day geopolitics, uh, uh, sometimes a lot of science also, uh, those uh, really are the foundation and the columns and beams. But then with all subjects, there are always strategic gaps in the narrative. Uh, and that is the playground of the fiction author. So the way I like to think about it is that I research columns and beams and then wherever the gaps are, that is where I can then do my brickwork and plastering, which is my fictional narrative. So the idea of any book within the Bharat series is that you should not know when you are reading fact and when you are reading fiction. You should be seamlessly moving between the two. Uh, I always like to joke that I, uh, if I really ask myself what sort of what sort of stories do you like? I say, well, I like fact that sounds like fiction and I like fiction that sounds like fact. Uh, so uh, it, it should be an amalgam. Then, of course, people, the most often question, uh, the most often asked question is, Ki, Ashwin, isme 
फैक्ट कितना है और फिक्शन कितना है एंड आई सी यार माई माई सजेशन रीड द डिस्कलेमर एट द बिगनिंग ऑफ द बुक दैट यू रीड द इंटायर स्टोरी एज फिक्शन बिकॉज वी आर वी आर डीलिंग विद सब्जेक्ट दैट टेन टू बी वेरी पर्सनल दे आर टॉपिक्स विच वेरी ऑफन डील विद पीपल्स फेथ विद पीपल्स ओन कॉन्टेक्स्ट ऑफ रिलीजन और देयर ओन नेरेटिव एज यू नो हिस्ट्री इज मल्टी डायमेंशनल and nowadays of course history has also become far more political over the last several decades uh which means in other words that uh, there can be multiple narratives and people can choose to live with the narrative that they are more comfortable with and i don't want to trade on those uh, those personal viewpoints of individuals i say read the whole thing as fiction but you and i both know that that fiction is based on a better bedrock of research into multiple subjects yeah you know what fascinates me about uh, fiction writing in that sense is a lot of people don't realize immense philosophy i mean my my background is philosophy a lot of serious philosophy has actually come out of fiction fiction Absolutely. writing Absolutely. whether it's you know a lot of russian authors uh, even dostoevsky in that matter and and e, uh, for that matter people don't realize even george orwell was like fascinatingly deeply philosophical person and and so is it, when you write so i'll give you an example like in the book you have this in the beginning in the prologue itself you say indian gurus have said that true wisdom lies in knowing that one knows nothing i am grateful to the universe for having taught me that i proudly stand before you today as the man who knows nothing and i raise a toast to my friend jim dastur who is that now i'm not going to talk about who jim dastur is but my point is that how does one extract deeply philosophical things and insert them like most people don't realize that even in the case of ayn rand who came up with a whole school now i'm not here to debate whether ayn rand's ideas were legit or not but the point is it was an entirely fictional book right that yes. entire uh, book written by ayn rand was a fiction and everybody basically objectivists take out all the the material out of it and they build an entire school based on it which had social values which had economic values and it had so many claims so so when you are writing your books are you expecting people maybe somewhere down the line to do such things from your work or or have you ever or has that ever happened in your case too uh there are many things you, you... you know people think that i am really making an effort to bring a lot of concepts into my story but very often they don't realize that i am actually garnering a lot of wisdom as i am going along i mean i really uh, genuinely believe that the process of crafting a novel is my education because at that time i am going into the areas that i that excite me you know um so uh, to give you an example i mean in the uh, uh, you, you know in 2014 or 15 dan brown came to india and uh, uh, during that annual lecture uh, his publishers reached out to me and they said he's going to be in conversation in uh, at the ncpa in bombay so ashwin will you be in conversation with him because you are known as the dan brown of india so it, this will be an interesting sort of uh, you know uh, thought so we we had a wonderful discussion for an hour and then after that we went away for dinner and that dinner did not end for about 4 or 5 hours that night and uh, 
after substantial amount of uh, mind lubrication brought on by copious quantities of alcohol uh there, there was uh, uh you, you know dan asked me he said ashwin what do you think of god and uh, i i took a pad and a pen and i wrote on that a formula which i had presented in the krishna key it was uh, g is equal to infinity minus k and uh, so then dan asked me he said now what what is this so i said well you consider g is what we consider divine you can call it anything you can call it the universe you can call it khuda you can call it ishwar you can call it whatever you want uh, but it is what we consider divine infinity is the entire universe the brahmand the entire thing whether we whether it is now it is in the future it is in the past whether it is in this dimension in another dimension everything that has existed or will exist is the brahmand so that is infinity and k is the extent of human knowledge so in effect what we don't know we attribute to god when the egyptians saw the sun rise in the east and set in the west they didn't know what it was they they said are this is ra the sun god and he wakes up in the morning and he travels across the sky in his chariot and at night he gets tired and then he goes to sleep and that is what causes day and night later on of course we had uh, uh, galileo and copernicus and aryabhatta and so many others telling us that this is a ball of fire and that uh, the planets revolve around it uh, and as a result of it which suddenly the sun lost some of its divine status because we could now start explaining it uh, so in that sense uh, that was something which came to me as an insight as a part of writing that book it's not as if i was born with that insight uh and very often i go into a second book and i realize no what i said in that book was wrong i need to revise my thought process because every book will eventually lead you down a certain path uh and for me it has happened more often uh than not where i've ended up actually sort of retracing my foot footsteps and saying are no this is not the right way to think about it but i think that's part of the enjoyment process kushal but one thing is very clear i for all of my novels i work on what is called the 70 20 10 rule uh and this 70 20 10 rule is related to what i consider to be the three e's of a good book mm-hmm. the first part of it is entertainment which must account for 70% because if i cannot entertain my reader then i cannot get the reader to turn the page the most difficult quality Uh, of a paperback writer or a mass market writer is to get someone to turn the page uh you know google did a study several years ago uh, not google but uh, amazon from the kindle and they found that the average book is read up to page 18 so people buy books but they don't finish them uh so the uh, the the whole notion that can i get someone to turn the page gives me a sense of satisfaction uh it also in some ways i uh, gives me a certain sense of power that i can compulsively get you to turn the page so that is one the next 20% is maybe that by the time you're done reading a bharat series book you may feel that i picked up some information that i was not aware of uh so for example if you were reading let's say magicians of mazda uh about roughly one third of the book 
deals with uh, Zoroastrian history and the Sassanids, yeah. and it deals with the uh, Achaemenid Empire and Darius and Xerxes, uh, names that you would have heard of, but you may not have put them into a context. So that is the 20% of education that comes along with it. And finally, at the end of the book, what I hope to induce in you is an aha moment that, he was actually talking about it all along like this. It is that sort of bhakti on moment. Uh, mm -hmm. And that I consider it to be the moment of enlightenment. So if I can entertain you 70% of the time, educate my reader 20% of the time, and by the end of the book, give them 10% of enlightenment, then I think I've pretty much done what I want. So let's maybe talk about that 20% a little bit over here. And let's talk about, uh, you know, the Sassanid history or other this is history of the Iranians. And they're, obviously the Parsi community plays a huge role in this particular book. There's oh. a central character which uh, revolves around uh, the experience of the Parsi community. So yes. when you were digging into the digging into the history of the movement of the Parsis all the way from Iran yes. uh, right down to India. So what uh, if, could you tell me maybe three, four instances that really stood out to you and you were like, damn, this happened. I mean, how, how did this happen to them? Uh, maybe uh, about that. No, you know, I mean, the, you know, we, we all know of Parsi history starting from 720 CE. 720 mm -hmm. CE is that year where the first boats arrived uh, with 18,000 refugees uh, at uh, at a place known as Sanjan, which lies in Gujarat. Uh, so for all of us, we think that, oh, the Parsis came to us in India uh, around the 8th century. But for me, the, the, the really the fascination was that could, you know, the, the Hindu Raja that received them, someone who is referred to as Jadi Rana, uh, Jadi Rana was very comfortable with the Parsis when they arrived. Uh, so to a very great extent, it, it sort of made me wonder that was this contact much older? You know, Gujarat lay along the maritime routes uh, which were used by the Zoroastrian sailors uh, from Persia. Uh, and in fact, even the Mahabharat uses a term known as Parasika. Uh, to refer to those people who inhabited regions west of the Indus. Mm -hmm. So the thought to my mind was that isn't it possible that the connection was a much older one? Uh, you know, so uh, yeah, over the years, I've been sort of fascinated by the idea that uh, there could be an overlap between Zoroastrian and Vedic elements. Uh, so for example, the Avesta refers, uh, reveres the, the holy cow. Uh, which, which is a pretty standard accepted notion uh, within Mikfi. Uh, or for example, Varuna and Mitra are respected even within the Gathas. Uh, uh, you know, the Zoroastrian Yasnas are very similar to our Yagyas. Uh, or for example, we both have uh, concepts like Asura, Ahura, Deva, Deva. Uh, you know, uh, we so in that sense, uh, I, I became more and more convinced that this connection was a far older one than simply the 8th century connection. Uh, and then when I started going deeper and deeper into it, uh, I was suddenly looking at, for example, the main character of Jim. Uh, now, Jim is a derivative of the word Jamshed. Then I started digging into the word Jamshed. 
and i said where does the word jam come from and jam actually comes from yam uh and uh, y- y- uh the god of death as it were uh and then of course uh that leads me to another connection which is uh yama and yamini uh the twins uh and i was not aware of the fact that yamini was the source for uh the const- uh, the star known as gemini because it's a twin star so there are lots of these fascinating sort of nuggets that come along as you are sort of doing your research uh we use the term shahanshah so often because mughal period many of the emperors took shahanshah and you treat it as an islamic term but you uh, very often forget that uh, shahanshah came from a, a term which was used by darais uh, sheta uh, sheta which is related to sheta in sheta which is the kshatriya of kshatriyas mm-hmm. uh, you would never imagine that that sort of a connection exists but it does once we start digging deeper and deeper so there there are a lot of those sort of mind blowing moments that for, w- w- were mind blowing for me when i was doing the research that uh, which i would have never even thought of you know uh, and 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 that's the fun of writing uh, writing books uh, in 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 the bharat series you know uh, take for example the 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 very title of this book the magicians of mazda where does the word magician come from it comes from the word magi where does the word magi come from because magi were the ancient priests of the zoroastrians and as we know even during the birth of jesus christ there were three magi who visited him they were known as the three wise kings or the three kings of orient star so why were they called magi they were called magi because they came from the word uh magus magus uh the the plural is magi the singular is magus but where does the word magus come from uh the word magus comes from the root magha in fact in the rigved indra is referred to as magavan uh anyone who was exalted had great powers uh as a result of which these people came to be known as magi and we use the word magician so casually not even realizing where that word came to us from so these are the sort of things where a regular reader of the bharat series has come to expect that uh, ashwin is going to start digging deeper and deeper into many of the things uh, i like to think of my novel very often not as really a, a, a linear progression but almost as an interesting web page with hyperlinks and you'll go into one hyperlink and then that hyperlink will lead you into another couple of hyperlinks it's almost an exploration so you know there is this particular section in your book i think it's on kindle on page 25 where uh, uh, jim says uh, but our loyalty must be to humanity as a whole not vested to interests within the industry do i have your unconditional support on this now i'll tell you we live in interesting times i'll tell you what this reminded me of sure. one ancient which is vasudeva kutumbakam the whole world is my family now somebody might come back and say are mahopanishad mein kaha tha magar hitopadesh aur panchatantra mein kaha tha ki murkh manta hai so before somebody says i mai samne se bol raha hu but ha took me first to the mahopanishad but then you know we are in these covid times 
Yes. We are in these times where big pharma has led to multiple things. Uh, I'm not an anti-vaxxer. Dekho, main khud triple vax too, bhaiyo aur behno. To mujhe judge mat karna. Magar, what I'm trying to say is we're living in this era of big pharma or big companies and big this and big that. And, and basically, I'm not, see, I can't reveal the plot. But what I'm trying to say is, so when I read this section, right, my brain went into two directions immediately. One was the Vasudeva Kutubakam, ki here's the man trying to say that, yaar, hamari to loyalty, humanity ko honi chahiye. And, mm. and then the other section replies, ha ha, sahi hai, I understand your emotion uh, 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 kind of a thing. So maybe we can talk about this. How does one... Do, you know how does one do this balance in that sense right this is a struggle all of us have whether um whether we do it at our, our, our personal level whether we do it at the level of our society whether we do it at the level of our country or whether we do it at the level of humanity right and and in fact till the extent that you know globalist has become a bad word these days agar koi globalist bolega to bhai bhai dur hatai isse to dar lagta hai ye to pagal hai now nowadays honestly that has become the the refrain so you know when when you wrote this did you anticipate somebody coming and telling you Ye kya rahe ho? <laughs> no i i genuinely in that sense believe it you you know philosophically we we are a we are a dharmic we are a dharmic nation kushal and dharmic thought essentially is that uh the vasudeva tambakam and it is essentially plural. It embraces multiple truths. I mean, you know, you can, 33 million deities can be part of the same family. Uh, you know, Jesus Christ can be incorporated on the facade of a temple. Uh, and the Buddha, uh, rather than being an alien to Hinduism, can be in, uh, can be absorbed as an avatar of Vishnu. Uh, you know, you could be an Aztec or a Nastic, uh, a Shaivite or a Vaishnavite, a vegetarian or a carnivore. You worship the fire like the Zoroastrians or rather use fire as a means for worship. You could be an idol worshipper or a nature worshipper. You may, uh, Kushal may worship Shiva or Shakti or a combination of both. You may see the path to enlightenment as Yantra, Tantra, Mantra or none of it. You may hold that the Shivling is a stone and I may say no, wo patthar jo hai, wo Shivling hai. Uh, but both of us are welcome. We can have 300 versions of the Ramayana and your version does not negate mine. And all religions are seen as different parts to the defi- uh, to the divine. I, I, I think that's the great thing about this country that we live in. Uh, and I think that, that is where there is a fundamental divide between the Dharmic and the Abrahamic. And that is something which... Uh, uh, is is rather stark that, you know, I mean, there is only one true God and it is my way or the highway. And for the longest time, whether it was the Crusades or whether it was the invasions or whether it was the attacks on Somnath or whether it was the number of incursions that happened or the holy wars that were fought, they were all related to the fact that the moment you start saying that, listen, my way is the only way, then there is a problem. Uh, and I, I think gradually the world needs to come to terms with this. That, hey, listen, you know, I mean, if we are really wanting that every, you know, that the, the idea of Vasudeva Katumba means that not only do I treat you as my family, but I can't treat you as my family if you don't treat me as your family. So it it, it needs to work all around. Yeah. Uh, 
so so i think that broad principle needs to be preserved that yes. I, i think that is what i was getting at yeah so it's about mutual respect not tolerance and and not it's very tolerance. interesting that in fact it's around 136 or 137 page where you say the problem with abrahamic faiths is their eagerness to convince those of other faiths of the error of their ways my country was only one of the many overrun by fundamentalism this was a interesting line that is uh, said in the context of i think iran and the, the entire experience of the zoroastrian movement where one character is speaking but i want to focus on something else if if you could uh, can you talk a little bit about zoroastrian philosophy in in one of those uh, italicized uh, notes where you start a chapter you said zoroastrian philosophy emphasizes the value of their own trinity good thoughts good words and good deeds humata hukata and huvarasta can you can you talk about this a little bit i i i loved this to be very honest this was such a beautiful thing that you introduced in the book it was such a profound concept and it can actually help people a lot no well i mean in in the sense that you know i i have spoken a lot about if you if you notice the 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 book is split into two separate portions one is uh one is the the present day events that are occurring which is a typical thriller uh where there are abductions kidnappings uh you know chases and all of that uh that's about two thirds of the book and about a third of the book is the first person nar- narration by jim dastoor um and if you uh, will will notice uh, kushal what, what it, it starts out by by jim talking about himself and his family then talking about how his family came to bombay and how bombay evolved then him talking about how the parsis landed in sanjan and as a result of which eventually there were enough parsis who could eventually relocate into bombay then he digs deeper into why did they run out of iran then he digs deeper into what was the glorious zoroastrian empire of the sassanids and so on so on and so forth uh he then goes back into the times of zairus uh, and xerxes uh but then eventually he digs deeper into the times of zarathustra uh and talks about how did that philosophy evolve but then when most people think that okay now we've reached the origin that okay now he's talked about zarathustra and how that philosophy came up uh, then we suddenly dig deeper into the roots of his thought process that where did that thought process come from uh and this is where to to a very great extent i find this whole the whole concept of the vedic expanse extremely exciting i mean honestly it it still sort of completely it sends chills down my spine uh, because we very often forget you know i mean today when we hear about problems happening in afghanistan we say ah wo wo wahan par kandahar mein blast ho gaya we forget that kandahar was gandhar we forget that gandhar had gandhari who was a major character within the mahabharat you know we 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 uh, it's it's very uh, uh, sometimes we we forget about the connections of uh, kaikai to the caucasus we f- forget about the connections of the river danube to danube danu uh, we 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 forget that the word iran itself is a derivative of the word aryan so those that entire so called uh, aryan crescent or the vedic crescent as it were uh, i found that very very fascinating and the the uh, the sort of divide 
between Yama and Manu and the Pitrayana, uh, uh, the Asura Deva divide, uh, and uh, the 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 notion that uh, there was a great war, the Dasaranjana, which was fought between the ten kings, uh, and the so-called schism between the Devas and the Asuras, uh, the rivalry between Bhrigu and Brihaspati, uh, and the emergence of the white-robed Atravan priests, as it were, uh, and then possibly the idea that they were all referring to an original source, which was probably the Atharva Ved, which got somewhere along the way, uh, a division occurred within that. Uh, the, the, the entire notion that, uh, that uh, uh, Ahura Mazda uh, could be a derivative of Asura Maya, uh, or the fact that uh, this was actually nothing else but the final split between Pitrayana and Devayana. Uh, that is really what was the exciting bit for me. Uh, for me, uh, mythology or spirituality or religion or theology in and of itself is never exciting. For me, the you, you know, people very often, uh, Kushal, ask me that, what do you actually do? And I said, you know, in the early days, I used to think of myself as a scientist sitting at CERN, you know, the great particle collider at CERN uh, in Geneva. And uh, uh, I'm thinking that I've got two subatomic particles. One subatomic particle is known as myth. And the other subatomic particle is known as history. And I put them into a super collider and I bring them charging towards one another at a very, very high speed. And they clash together and they fuse into a completely new element. So now neither myth exists nor history exists, but a new element has been created. And that equation is myth plus history is equal to mystery because it answers that what if question. You and I both know that's a delicious question. What if? Uh, and, and that's pretty much what I try to do. And that, here also, uh, this book is no different. I'm trying to simply dig at what were the roots of this particular philosophy. So could the three great fires have been related to some supernatural events? Could there be a possibility that the trinity of uh, words, thoughts, and deeds could have been related to other trinities? Could there be uh, could there be the possibility that some of the derivatives within Zoroastrianism came as a result, or could both have evolved? Uh, from a common origin. I explore all of those. And like, um, it, it is always my intention to provide you with a certain narrative. But I also, that's one of the reasons why I give you such a comprehensive bibliography, so that you can also explore the alternative narratives. Uh, so don't that, take me at my word. You know, I mean, I, the, the idea is that uh, if, for example, like, for example, in this book, I may, I may say, hey, listen, you know, these were Ultimately, all, all of them were related to Atharva. Uh, ultimately, fire was the common point for all of this. Uh, there may be others who say, hey, listen, no. I mean, it, you know, there was, there was some point in the... Uh, I mean, you, you just look at the disagreement on this concept of Aryan invasion uh, or Aryan migration uh, or out-of-India theory. I mean, no one can agree on anything. Uh, so the point is that from the context of a fictional story, I have to give you a version. But I don't want you to simply take me at my word. Read all the alternatives also.
and that's how it should be that's how real exploration can i tell you one line in your book that that was actually there's so many but i'm going to read this line deena would remind the boys that all that money gave a person was the freedom of not having to worry about it i mean i don't know if you realize the profundity of this thought because this is a very profound thought because this does not say you know those classical things that those uncles in india say beta paisa to hatho ka mahal hai beta kya hai na 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 sara mahal mujhe de do this this line uh, and and i seriously say this when i read this line i was like how i wish i had the you know i had the the skill that ashwin had itna sundar tarike se aapne ye itni profound cheez kahi hai ki money gave us the freedom of not having to worry about it the point is the amount of worries that are related through money are so high that if you don't have it yeah. that that's when you get screwed and wo andar ka mere ko lagta us moment mein purana businessman aa gaya but i i i must tell you first of all i there is a disclaimer that that particular line was not ashwin sanghi's it was johnny carson's line but it has been oh, wow. used in the context of that narrative but nevertheless it's it's i agree with you it's profound because of the fact that uh, uh when i look back at my own life uh, kushal uh, uh tr- truly what what you you know i grew up in an environment where um uh, i was born in a business family uh, it was taken for granted ki this is what i am going to be doing um my uh, the one common element or the during my growing up years you know in marwadi families kushal the the uh, uh, and probably in many many other business communities uh, uh, rather than doing a jap in the child's year probably the two words that are murmured is debit and credit uh, <laughs> uh, when the child is born you know uh, I, i so vault of vishnu in that i have narrated a very interesting uh, uh, nugget an anecdote uh, which talked about the silk road and the merchants of the merchants of samarkand and they had one very interesting tradition when a baby was born a boy was born in the house uh, they would touch a, gl- a drop of glue to the child's palm and uh, they would touch a drop of honey to the child's tongue and the idea was basically that he should have such sweet words that he should be able to sell anything to anyone and he should have a sticky palm taki jo coins hain wo wahan par ja ke atak jaye so the 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 cultural context in which i was born was no different to the merchants of samarkand uh but the one influence i had in my life was my nana ji who lived in kanpur and uh, i called him nana ji he was actually my my grand uncle and uh, he had this habit of sending me one book every week to read and he would tell me he would say beta dekho tum to banya marwadi family ke ho लाइफ में तुम तो लक्ष्मी जी को ही पूजोगे तो बट एक चीज याद रखो कि जो लक्ष्मी और सरस्वती के बीच का जो इक्वेशन है वो बड़ा ही विचित्र है सो आई वुड से व्हाट इज इट नाना जी सो ही वुड से सी लक्ष्मी इज ऑलवेज क्यूरियस अबाउट वेयर सरस्वती इज अगर सरस्वती इस कमरे में बैठी है देन लक्ष्मी वॉन्ट्स टू कम ह्योर इफ सरस्वती गेट्स अप एंड लीव्स देन लक्ष्मी ऑल्सो इज क्यूरियस वेर एज शी गॉन and she leaves to go there and he said the only deity in our hindu pantheon of gods who can sit between these two devis and keep them together is ganesh so he said if you want one sikh from me live your life like ganesh and i like to lo- joke kushal 
that probably that explains why Ashwin looks the way he does because he's tried to live his life like Ganesh. But the the point the point I'm making is that the that that the notion that Saraswati can be a means to Lakshmi is something that I picked up through through my Nanaji. But what Nanaji always used to tell me was that remember one thing that in your life you will realize at a certain point of time that your satisfaction is only coming as a result of that perfect balance of wealth and wisdom. And if one is not in balance with the other, then somewhere along the way, your life as Ganesh will disappear. Uh, And now when I think back at all that has happened in my life, and these 15 years, I, I wrote Rosabal Line in 2002 and could not publish it till 2007. So I started writing it in 2002, finished it in 2004, five, and then could not find publisher for, for two odd years um, before it was eventually published in 2008. But if I look at all of that journey, the what is driving me uh, is, is, is certainly not money. Money is that is that means to be able to live my life normally. It is my ability to be able to enjoy doing what I want to do. Uh, I remember a couple of years ago, during this COVID pandemic, uh, on 31st evening, I was sitting alone and uh, I was just jotting down some points and I thought about the word happiness. And I said, what is it that drives my happiness? And you know what, Kushal, I made five bulleted points on that. And I wrote, number one, health. That if I'm not healthy and the people around me are not healthy, how can I possibly be happy? Because at that moment, happiness jumps out of the window. If if a love near, near and dear one has cancer, there's no way that you can be happy in that moment. The second part of it is wealth. That you want that much wealth that you should be able to live your life comfortably. You should be able to once in a while indulge yourself. But it doesn't need to be overbearing. The third what drives me is that spirit of creation, that spirit of creativity, that being having an objective to aspire to, because that is what then drives you to the next day. It makes you get up at 4.30 in the morning thinking about the next chapter of your book. The fourth thing is relationships. If you don't have valuable relationships, then you're worth nothing in life. Even if you, even if your book is an AC Nielsen bestseller for multiple weeks in a row, who are you going to share it with? There has to be someone who is going to clap for you. Those are the relationships. And finally, I think the fifth is belief in a greater power, that there is something greater than us all. You don't have to be God-fearing. People think that, oh, the universe was created as a result of the Big Bang 13 billion years ago. Then the question is, who created the Big Bang? People say, oh, no, no, no. Actually, the the Big Bang was created as a result of a reaction to the Big Crunch. And it was actually a single point of energy, that single point which started expanding into the universe. But who created that single point of energy? So that, that you re- it's, it's one of those Russian, Russian dolls where as you peel off a layer, another layer emerges. So I think at least in my life, I found that that money is one part of it. I'm, I'm, I'm not unreasonable. Enough to say that money cannot bring you happiness. It is a part of happiness, but it is not the end all in the end.
one more line and then I'll start taking the viewers' questions. Um, this is interesting. Yeah, this is the bit where you say when people commented that Baman was smart in spite of limited education, Navroz would retort, the boy is precisely smart because of his limited education. <laughs> and that line actually came to me from my father. That line came to me from my father, not in not in so many words. But I had just returned from America, having completed a two-year MBA. And my father turned around and said, you've spent two years learning management theory. Now it's going to take me two years to unlearn your management theory for you. So I, I said, what is this all about? He says, no, you belong to that category, which I called Parha Likha Gadha. Uh, in other words, you you have all the theory at your command, but ultimately he would all he was you you know dad has always been one of those very pragmatic people, uh, and he he's the one who has taught me that common sense is not so common, uh, and uh, I was just trying to distill that uh, that that takeaway from him uh, that sometimes uh, at least if I don't know if you've ever bother to look back into your uh, alumni lists or into your class lists where you were in high school. And I find surprisingly that the guys and girls who were not never very high achievers uh, at school or college turning out to be incredibly great achievers in later life. And sometimes the ones who were really at the top of the class have fallen to the wayside. What explains that? Hmm. I don't know. I guess they, they, you know, in my case, not that I was great academically. I was not bad, but I was like above average. I was never the class topper or anything of that sense. So, so in my case, I can probably uh, say, um, if you ask me, I just think some people are not good in, in academics, but they eventually find a thing they're good at and they excel in it. And it's all about finding what you're good at eventually. Good at. So, so uh, when I go to these universities, they, they ask me sometimes, kids will ask me that, you know, how, how should I plan my life? And I had written this book called 13 Steps to Bloody Good Luck. You know, uh, it, it was a small little nonfiction type self-help book about what is it that makes people lucky? And is, is luckiness something that comes from the heavens or is, is it a trait that you can actually develop? And uh, I would always say to them that, listen, if you are lucky in life, then you get to do what you love. If you are luckier, then you get to do what you love and you are actually good at it. And if you are the luckiest, then you get to do what you love, you're good at it, and someone is willing to pay you for it. Uh, and and touch wood, I, I, th I think whether it was you or whether it was me, we both became extremely lucky in that regard that we were able to do what we love. And we turned out to be fairly good at it. And we eventually ended up finding someone who was willing to pay us for it. Absolutely. I agree. Now, Ashwin, let's take a few questions because I have a few of them that I need to ask. And, and I'm really glad that, you know, people are actually asking questions. So, so I'm proud of the fact that I've cultivated an audience that knows how to ask questions also. So someone has asked. How do you suggest a non-writer get started with serious writing? I have been working on a historical fiction of the of late, but frustrated with what and how little I wrote. So this, I guess, is an aspiring writer asking one of the most established writers in India. So jara. No, I, I first of all, I don't know where the, the where along the continuum your questioner is at this point of time. 
but when people ask me how do i how do i get started into writing i say the first golden rule is write many people think about writing but they don't write uh so just cultivate the habit of writing it could be as little as 100 or 200 words a day it could be simply writing in your own diary or in a journal or it could be uh, putting out a very well structured tweet every day or it could be uh, creating a facebook post uh, where you really thought about what you are sharing uh but get into that habit of writing every day uh the second part of it is i believe that too many people are always worried log kya kahenge uh and uh this is you know this inhibits your writing uh to a very great extent uh there are all with any work of creativity there is bound to be criticism it comes with the territory uh and the ability to be able to write and then take your fair share of criticism with it when i wrote the rosabal line one of the first reviewers said i wish he had written a shorter book ashwin could have considered stopping on page 10 so the that that is the nature of anything creative even when people come out of a movie theater uh you will find some people going wow kaisi picture thi yaar brilliant and then there are others who say i couldn't understand what was going on uh so that that is it there there is an old joke which says that the relationship between uh, uh between the author and the critic is the relationship between the lamp post and the dog so i mean the lamp post knows what is going to happen when the dog comes near so just stop worrying about what people will say and be free to write that is the second thing the third is that always what has worked for me is planning my writing you heard from me uh, kushal related to the process that goes into the bharat series uh i don't think i would be able to turn out these books if i was not as structured i know there are friends of mine in the writing world who just say we take a blank piece of paper and we start writing it has never worked for me i am fundamentally one of those people who even in the world of business i always wanted a business plan in front of me i always operated with to do lists and task lists so therefore for me planning my writing is a very important thing i would say the fourth thing is don't lose the day job uh it's very difficult to write when you're hungry uh and writing is one of those things that you can do at any time my dear friend amish used to do it in the car while going back and forth from office to home uh i used to do it after coming from a whole day of office and i would sit at 10 o'clock to write between 10 and 12 uh and that's how the rosabal line was written so you can do that any time but if you don't have your stable income coming in it's very very difficult to pursue uh writing as a profession it will be a long long time before your royalties will start kicking in and finally i would say the fifth thing is that in the event that you do attain a modicum of success then just remember one thing remain humble remain grounded remember that every word that came on the page was a blessing from ma saraswati you were only the medium through which those words appeared on the page never think of it as your output it is the output of ma saraswati so remain grounded in that respect those are the only things that i can share with uh, aspiring writers all right so now the next question is 
Um, this is a very specific question about fiction writing. Have you looked into similarities of Seven Apkalu with uh, Seven Sages of India? Graham Hancock's Magicians of the God, in his book, he goes into similarities of Seven Apkalu with figures in other cultures, but not in India. Have you studied this? Sure. I mean, for example, uh, if you take, let's say, for example, the uh, the story of Gilgamesh, uh, mm-hmm. the myth of Gilgamesh, uh, uh, and you take the story of Noah, and then you take the story of Dwarka, you will find many similarities across the flood myths. Uh, or, for example, in the epic of Gilgamesh, uh, there is the reference to the seven sages. Uh, and on the other hand, of course, in India, we have the reference to the Saptarishis. Uh, and of course, Sapta forms a very important part of everything, whether it's the Sapta Sindhu, whether it's the Sapta Rishi, uh, and, uh, you know, uh, so many other uh, concepts. If you read a book of mine known as the Krishna Ki, I, I, I talk about the fact that it requires seven colors in order to uh, uh, form pure white light, uh, or for example, seven notes of melody, uh, and so many other concepts, which are all inextricably linked. Uh, the view I have is that a lot of the uh, myths that uh, Graham Hancock explores, uh, I don't even know whether they should be necessarily called myths. Because over a period of time, uh, I mean, let, let's take our the greatest myths that we have, the Ramayana and the Mahabharata. And of course, people call them mythology. I don't like calling it mythology because it's itihas. Uh, in that sense, it is as it happened. But um, if you can have 300 versions of a story, uh, obviously it means that there are different interpretations of what happened. Uh, there are different versions of what happened. But does that take away from the fact that something must have happened so that people wrote 300 versions on it? Uh, so my personal view when it comes down to myths is that they are based on some events or some personalities which were so great that people felt that they needed to write about them. Uh, I remember, Kushal, many, many uh, uh, years ago, I was at a lecture in Kolkata uh, and I had half a day free. So I told my driver, I said, Mujhe par bhi le jao. I have three, four hours free. He said, Saab, aap mandir dekhenge? I said, sure, take me to a mandir. And... Uh, you know, if you're in Calcutta, then it's assumed for a fact that you, you're going to a Devi Mandir, Durga Mandir or something or the other like that. Uh, he took me to a, a road known as Sridhar Roy Road. And on that, there was a very unassuming structure, whitewashed structure. I went inside and in the center of the room, uh, there was a green colored throne and uh, uh, people were praying. There was a pujari uh, performing puja uh, and people offering flowers and all of that. Uh, and when I looked closely, Kushal, I realized that on that green throne, there was a portrait of Amitabh Bachchan. Uh, and I pinched myself. I've landed up in an Amitabh temple. Uh, you know, I was I was zapped. Uh, and I thought that I've come into some different dimension altogether. So I went outside from the mandir. There was a young boy who was selling things like flowers and agarbattis and all. He came with his basket. I was waiting for my car. And I never bought anything from him except for one little book, which was known as the Amitabh Chalisa. And that was the moment I realized that, no, this is not another dimension. This is an Amitabh temple. People are worshipping Amitabh. And there is even an entire prayer book known as the Amitabh Chalisa. 
Now, when I was standing there, I thought to myself, I said, supposing Ashwin, your car, the driver loses control of the car and he comes at a high speed charging towards you, he knocks you down, you die on the spot and you take rebirth in this karmic cycle 1000 years later. And 1000 years later, the cult of Amitabh worship has really caught on. And now there isn't one temple dedicated to Amitabh Bachchan. There are one lakh temples dedicated to Amitabh. And someone in that life of yours asks you, do you think Amitabh could have been a real man? Isn't that precisely the question we are asking about our great mythological figures? That could they have been real? The point I'm making is that we leer over the years, layers and layers, so to the point where the original texture of the wall is no longer visible. Multiple layers of paint and plaster have resulted in what we call mythology. But does that take away from the fact that there is an original surface underneath it? No, it doesn't. Interesting. So another question, what is Ashwin's way to keep track of subplots and tie up all ends given the complexity of ideas? Any special reason for alliterations in the title? <laughs> Actually, I must tell you, if the, the first book in the Bharat series, the Rosabal line had no alliterations. It was the Rosabal line. But the se second book in the series, was, which was Chanakya's Chant, uh, uh, was, was actually, technically speaking, my first bestseller uh, because it went on to the Nielsen number one uh, very, very quickly. And uh, uh, th that is the reason why somehow or the other, after the success of Chanakya's Chant, uh, I never thought about, uh, I never thought about uh, changing, that, uh, changing that structure. So all the subsequent books became alliterations. Yeah, so uh, th that is as far as the alliterations bit is concerned. As far as the research and keeping track of plots and subplots are concerned, uh, as I mentioned, I, I use Excel to first plot out uh, everything. Uh, then once I'm done with the Excel spreadsheet, I use a software known as Scrivener. Uh, Scrivener is basically, I mean, I would say it's the ultimate tool for a writer because what you can do is you can take all the plot points from uh, your spreadsheet and you can actually make index cards uh, so that you can then move around those index cards in terms of, well, you know, I mean, like when I was working on my crime thrillers with James Patterson, he would say, I love the flow of this chapter where this murder happens, but I wish it was happening earlier. So then you want to move that entire event, but it's going to change certain things uh, in the rest of the story. So Scrivener helps you do that. And then attached to every index card is the actual uh, is the actual essay. When I'm writing, let's say, a novel of uh, 150 words, I don't think of it as a, uh, or a, or a novel of 150 chapters. I don't think of it as a novel of 120,000 words. I think of it as 120 short stories. So what I'm doing is basically writing 120 short stories, which are all linked to one another and which mm -hmm. I can move around at, at will. Uh, but knowing fully well that it's dynamic. So if I've moved one thing, it's going to have implications somewhere else, you know? Got it. Uh, Got it. So, uh, but Scrivener is very useful. And then from Scrivener, I export everything uh, into... Uh, the other advantage of Scrivener is that all my relevant research, I can actually bring it uh, into Scrivener. So I can import PDF files. I can import web links. So even if I'm on a flight, and I need to access a web page, I can access it online via Scrivener. Uh, so all of that 
becomes much easier. And then, of course, once I'm done with the entire story, uh, our present day editors are not at all comfortable uh, in terms of uh, in terms of using Scrivener. So then export mm-hmm. the whole thing into Word and then let the editors take over. All right. So I'm going to mix these two questions together because they're all about writing. It's good. A lot of aspiring writers and are asking questions, I guess. So does writing Indic fiction using Hindu philosophy or theology uh, get any pushback from publishers uh, because of uh, the way the world is structured? And the second one is, how the hell does one find a good publisher in the first place? Because uh, also, is ghostwriting a serious problem in, in, in your field? Uh, well, I don't think ghostwriting is a serious problem. Poor writing is a serious problem. (laughs) (laughs) I've not come across too many people who are doing ghostwriting or getting their stuff ghostwritten. And it's very evident uh, from the output that emerges that if if it was a ghostwriter, it would probably sound a lot better. But uh, I I, I would say that uh, there is uh, the overall industry is yet to... uh, the publishing industry, as it were, remained in the dark ages in India for a long, long time, Kushal, because yeah. um, in, particularly when you talk about the world of English fiction, uh, uh, most of the publishers in our country uh, have their uh, are, are parts of multinational conglomerates. And for the longest time, their interest was really in pushing their best-selling titles uh, from the West uh, in India. So as a result of which, I mean, if you remember, uh, I, I remember in my growing up years, I would walk into a bookshop and I would be only looking at Jeffrey Archer or Robert Ludlum or Frederick Forsyth exactly. or what, what have you. Uh, and I think for the longest time, it was believed that, well, Indian writers should be uh, focusing on either writing award-winning stuff. So you're a, you're a Salman Rushdie or an Arundhati Roy or an Amitav Ghosh. Not that I have anything against anyone who's writing award-winning literary fiction. But that is what you were meant to be focused on. Or alternatively, you were writing family sagas or epics, or you were writing uh, uh, how to make a great biryani. Those were the things which Indians were supposed to do. Uh, Now, what is very surprising is that uh, you already had uh, fiction writers in, in, in Hindi who were selling in lakhs. You had people like Surendra Mohan Pathak uh, selling at every railway station in the thousands. Uh, But somehow or the other, that could not be replicated in the world of English fiction. And for that, if we owe a a real debt of gratitude, it is probably to Chetan Bhagat. Because had it not been for the arrival of Chetan, I don't Mm -hmm. think that that paradigm would have changed. Uh, Where suddenly a publisher said, well, if, if, if... Chetan Bhagat can sell a few lakh copies, then that means, in other words, there's something that we've missed. And then, of course, Amish came onto the scene and various others came onto the scene as a result of which suddenly this took off. Uh, does, does, does it mean that it is only Indic mythological stuff which is relevant? Uh, no, I don't think so. Uh, I think there are going to be many, many more genres that are going to explode. Uh, so, for example, I think crime thrillers, uh, if you look at all the Western bookshops, uh, the top 
the top tens are always crime thrillers, but that doesn't happen yet in India. It will eventually happen. Uh, or, for example, you take, for example, sci-fi, or you take, for example, horror and paranormal. There are many, many sub-genres within the world of fiction which have not yet been fully explored. And even if they have been explored, they've remained niche books which have sort of just sold a few thousand copies and then sort of poof, disappeared into the market. I think that has to be, you know, become far more stable and we need to have far more authors thinking out of the box. Uh, if, if, thought, uh, if I had thought about, uh, uh, you know, only doing what Chetan was doing, I would not have written the Rosabal line. People thought I was mad when I was trying to write a theological thriller uh, based on the life of Jesus Christ. I mean, they said, are you nuts? So I think mm -hmm. this is very important that all aspiring writers should be trying to push the boundaries. And the publishing industry is today a different place than what it was 15, 20 years ago. They are far more open to new ideas. That, that's good to hear because I, I have no experience of this side of the aisle. I can, I can only you know guess what it must be like because you know there are a lot of times they are uh, you know mm, there are these preconceived notions about publishing in india and what publishers want and what publishers seek so it's actually in a way it's good that you know you you are sharing this perspective and it inspires more people to write and what people don't realize i guess you know maybe in the non-fiction genre publishers might be more uh, rigid and and in the fiction genre i think there is more flexibility i don't know i'm, I'm not sure what the exact uh, play there might be but that's what i'm assuming uh by, because uh, you know the, the one good thing about hosting a podcast is you get to speak with so many authors and yes. and i have had the pleasure to speak with non-fiction and fiction writers both and and i do tend to see that you know when it comes to the non-fiction writers they tend to have a lot more pressure when it especially if they don't toe a certain line yeah in that sense yeah i i i i think the, the the good news is that today the bestseller lists are dominated by indian writers part one part two what is also good news is that it isn't only mythology that is selling there is other stuff that is, like, for example, you've just read The Magicians of Mazda. There's there's very little mythology in it. Uh, it's, yeah. it's a lot of historical narrative along with the, uh, with the thriller element. Uh, so mm -hmm. I think as we are going along, uh, you know, more and more uh, newer ideas are uh, being allowed to flourish. And over a period of time, what we are going to see is that there will be an, I mean, you take, for example, Kushal, the, the, the sudden spurt in biographies. Uh, you, you see, for example, the uh, or also uh, alternative narratives. I mean, you, you take someone like, for example, a, a Jesai Deepak, or you take someone like a Vikram Sampath, uh, you would not imagine that these books would ever be able to break that ceiling, which had been Absolutely. set by a lot of the publishers that, hey, listen, these will not cross beyond this number. So. Mm -hmm. A lot of things are very dynamically changing. And that's the reason I'm, for whoever it is who has asked this question, I'm, I'm, I'm very keen that aspiring writers must really think, uh, don't, don't get carried away by herd mentality and say, oh, no, no, either it is chiclet or it is campus romance because campus romance worked with Chetan Bhagat or mythology worked along with Amish or with, it, 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 it is fundamentally 
uh, thrillers that worked along with Ashwin. No, there are many, many spaces that you can explore. Fascinating. I, and and you know what? I hope what the the one thing that you know, if you know, young kids who are, who watch this podcast over on YouTube or listen to this on uh, um, on Spotify is that if they aspire to write, I think you know whether it's you, whether it's Amish and, and many others, you know, the one thing they can learn is you know, but through listening to you guys and you guys have been such great achievers in this field and and you guys have given so much to to the art of writing that you know like i i i am a pathetic writer i i've always sometimes you know, I, I kind of wonder how how do you guys do it and it, it's so nice like when i was which is why you know when i was reading your book i was taking out these excerpts and these beautiful lines that were part of the book because you know the written word has its own impact the spoken word has its own impact and and that's that's the beauty i mean i, I, I sometimes yeah I, I can say i have a hold over the spoken word i can speak but yeah i just i i i somehow when it you know if i'm told to transfer that to writing i, I just can't do it mm-hmm. and maybe it's it it is all about practice too but you know it's it's an it's an absolute pleasure to see how you do it or amish does it and many more does it vikram sampath does it i mean the way vikram wrote the savarkar biographies people don't realize how how effortlessly he wrote those 1200 pages of, of which could have been bland in Absolutely. that sense but but it was Absolutely. not so 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 hats off to all of you guys and uh, and uh, ashwin uh, i can only say one thing before we wrap today's discussion up you know people like you inspire people like me and you guys are amazing and you are amazing and i wish you all the best and and thank you very much for coming on this uh, on my podcast and having a chat with me kushal let me tell you first of all it was my pleasure to be chatting with you uh because i i know the amount of homework that you do before you do each one of thank these you. podcasts uh and you you know i have been for dime a dozen interviews where people simply say oh you know what is your writing process or you know do you use a typewriter or do you use a pink pen and paper and and i know that this person has done zero homework before they they probably not even read the book uh, that's expecting too much whereas i know for a fact that probably you would have read the book twice before you eventually frame your questions so thank you for doing that level of homework thank you for inviting me here it is not only a pleasure but it's my honor to be here with you uh, kushal and in some ways we are we are birds of a feather because we both gave up very different lives uh, in order to do what we do uh, so that also somehow makes me feel connected to you so thank you it has been an absolute pleasure to be in conversation with you thank you very much it means a lot to me coming from someone who have actually admired so not only am i i said it's, it's like for me in a, in many ways it's a fanboy moment and uh, i appreciate uh, your words and i look forward to having many more conversations with you uh, but before we wrap today's uh, chat up guys again in the description of the podcast i've left a link uh where uh, you can go and buy the book uh, so i've basically hyperlinked ashwin's uh, book website and you can go and buy it on flipkart amazon wherever there are multiple links over there you can go and buy it i insist all of you go and buy the book i mean if you're a hard copy guy you can buy it there i'm like i'm personally a kindle person i read books on kindle so you can go because the book is available on kindle too and uh, you can buy the entire bharat series and uh, as far as i'm concerned look i try my best to talk to multiple authors discuss subjects which are 
not being spoken about or or, or not a popular hashtag on social media so this podcast only survives by crowd support i i do not take sponsorships i do not take anything is because i want complete intellectual control on this uh, on this platform i and i do not want to and I, and i want to make this platform majorly about books as you see i've done more than 60 book reviews on this podcast there's nobody doing that out there i only do it i may work hard i read the book and i try to do it because i i i appreciate the hard work that an author does you know when you put your blood and sweat for like a year and a half two years and then you churn out a book the least i can do as a podcaster is first read it and i know many people out there don't read books so please don't be like that person and for me to go on doing this i need your support so please subscribe to the channel like this video you can become a member on youtube or on patreon you can buy the merch or you can send your donations directly to upi i will see you guys next time until then namaste take care bye bye